You're listening to Constitutionally Sound from the Center on Constitutional Change. We'll be back in your feeds with new episodes in September, but for now, please enjoy this episode from our archive. For more from us throughout the summer, please visit our website, centeronconstitutionalchange.ac.uk, for the latest blogs and analysis. Hello and welcome to this edition of Constitutionally Sound, a podcast brought to you by the Centre on Constitutional Change at the University of Edinburgh. I'm Alan Little, I'm a broadcaster and journalist, and over the next 30 minutes or so, I'll try to find a path through the vexed territory of Brexit in Brexit, deal or no deal. Where are we now with talks that both sides agreed would be over by now, but are still continuing? What have the EU and the UK agreed to already, and where do they remain unreconciled? What kind of relationship will emerge on January the 1st, and how will it evolve in the months and years ahead? And constitutionally, what will Britain's changed place in the world mean for governance in the UK? Michael Keating is Professor of Politics at the University of Aberdeen, and was Director of the Centre on Constitutional Change at Edinburgh for seven years until a few months ago. He's the author or editor of more than 30 books on Scottish politics, European politics, nationalism and regionalism. And among many accolades is his membership of the British Academy. Elvia Fabry has been a senior research fellow at the Jacques Delors Institute since 2009. Her expertise lies in trade policy, the EU in globalisation and Brexit, as well as WTO reform, the EU's bilateral trade negotiations and global governance. She also serves on the Policy Advisory Committee of the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Let's start by examining what's glaringly obvious, what has emerged from the talks over the last four and a half years, and that is that the two sides went into this with fundamentally different, indeed contradictory, visions of how the process would be conducted, how it would all go, and what was possible at the end of it. Michael, first of all, what did the British, the Brexiteer government led by Boris Johnson in particular, think would happen in this process? Well, the Brexiteer position is dominated by considerations of sovereignty, maintaining Westminster sovereignty in a very absolute way, which is sometimes difficult to understand because any kind of deal you make with another country or organisation involves binding yourselves to obey the rules of that agreement. And it's very difficult to get, get around that, even under the World Trade Organization, there are rules that you have to uh, obey. Whereas the EU's position is that the more access you get to the EU internal markets, the more you've got to accept the rules. So as Michel Barnier's famous ladder, you can go all the way from the EA, which is a Norway arrangement, complete access to the single market, more or less, but accepting the rules, all the way down to through Canada, through Turkey, to no deal, WTO rules, you keep your sovereignty, but you don't get access to the market. That also, the UK started off with the idea, this is a trade deal or a system of deals. You can cherry pick in bits and pieces. And the concept of the European Union was an association agreement, a broad agreement. And that's what it likes to have with other countries. Uh, it doesn't want another Switzerland where they have 120 or so agreements. That's fundamentally the difference. Now, it comes back to Mrs. May's position when she setting out our conditions in the famous Lancaster House speech. We're coming out of the single market. We're coming out of the customs union. We're coming out of the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. 
And if you do that, you're not going to get access to the market. Now, there are all kinds of permutations which would take all day to go through, but these are the fundamental issues, and they really haven't changed. But the British seem to have regarded it as uh, a matter of trading, and like horse trading, where we give you this and you give us that in return. But, but that is not how the Europeans saw that. And Elvira, that phrase, cherry-picking, can you explain why the EU is so worried about the idea of conceding something that looks like cherry-picking? It's, it's about the integrity of a system, isn't it? Exactly. Since the beginning, the, the Europeans have been very clear. And the, the first thing that they have done when they have engaged in, in, in the process of preparing the not only the future relation, but first of all, the withdrawal, the withdrawal agreement, was trying to organize the negotiation, trying to sequence the, the talks. And we have to remember that first Europeans have been very clear that they wanted to treat the withdrawal agreement, the withdrawal of the UK from the EU, and then prepare the future relations. Those were two very distinct issues. And they have been very clear in that process that there were rules to get out of the EU and that the UK part had to address the negotiation by considering the EU in its legal framework. Let me ask you, you talk a bit in your writing, Elvira, about something called differentiated integration. Now, on the face of it, that phrase seems internally contradictory. Differentiation and integration are opposite processes after all. What do you mean by differentiated integration and why is it so important to the EU, not just over the last four and a half years, but over the last decade or more? Well, if in fact, the, um, what is interesting in the in the Brexit uh, negotiation is that it gives a, a broad focus on all what the EU has been building over the last decade with some very close partners. Of course, uh, we, we have the partners like very integrated, like like Norway. But you you mentioned Michael already mentioned uh, Switzerland, and we have uh, Turkey. But all those different third countries with our, which are neighboring countries, which are differently integrated in the EU, had agreed, had negotiated some uh, different terms of access to the EU because there were specific countries at specific moments of the EU integration. But it has always been a question of balance between benefits and duties. And, uh, and that's where, from the beginning, the EU has been very clear that there were no possible benefits if it was uh, not balanced with some duties and if it was the legal principles of the EU and notably the four freedoms of the EU. What is interesting is that those four freedoms have been in a way constitutionalized by the launching of the Brexit negotiation because it was very clear from the beginning that they couldn't be separate. They had to be uh, linked. And I think that's the EU has also very well assessed uh, the weak points of some differentiated integration that it has conceived previously, notably with Switzerland, that piling up some hundreds of agreements that were very difficult to manage uh, wasn't a, a, good, uh, a good option. And the negotiators didn't uh, lay much ground to go in that direction. But I, I want to underline another element is that it's we are focusing very much on trade issues because it, because it is the, the the core of the the negotiation. But what what is at stake uh, in this negotiation? It's much much more broader, and it cannot be dealt as a, in a trade negotiation like a transaction issue. It has to see with regulatory issues, uh, not only 
technical regulatory issues like for trade goods uh, at the heart of the trade negotiation, but all the different issues that need to be addressed, like for data transfer, uh, like for professional qualification, it's related with regulatory issues. And the issue at stake, it's precisely that the UK is, has engaged in this negotiation as um, having to, to assert his, its sovereignty, uh, while this negotiation is not about asserting, asserting sovereignty, the UK is already legally, since the 31st of January uh, 2020, a third country. It is more about managing interdependence between the EU and, uh, and the UK. And it has uh, many, many issues had to be, uh, had to be negotiated, which uh, uh, we cannot threaten the, the cohesion of uh, of all the regulatory system on which the single market is based. The Spanish foreign minister summed this up very eloquently just a, a day or two ago, just in a few sentences, saying that uh, trade negotiations are not a mechanism by which you assert your sovereignty. They're a mechanism, a mechanism by which you manage your interdependence. Uh, let me ask Michael about the politics of the UK. As Elvira has said, this approach has been building in, in, the, in the EU about how to manage differentiated, differing forms of integration with various partners uh, for more than a decade, long before the Brexit uh, referendum of 2016. And yet, in 2016, we heard Michael Gove, for example, saying that the day after a Brexit vote, the UK would hold all the cards. We heard David Davis, another leading Brexiter, say that he would go as Secretary of State for exiting the EU, not to Brussels, but to Berlin, to Angela Merkel, and she would see immediately the importance of having a a trade deal with Britain. These are men, for the most part men, but some women as well, who have been obsessed with the European Union for many years, and yet they appear to have fundamentally misread it. Would you agree with that, Michael? Yes, I would. There are many people in, in the Conservative Party who read it right, but they've all left government, they've left politics in many cases, they've been thrown out. And so we're left with the hard Brexiters who have this vision of sovereignty. No country is sovereign in the world in in that sense, because we all are embedded in international agreements. They did underestimate the relative power of the EU and the UK because they say, well, uh, we sell a lot of stuff to them. but we sell more, they sell more to us than we sell to them. But if you look at it as a proportion of GDP, we're much more reliant because we sell about half of our exports into the EU and they sell less than 10% of theirs into our markets. So there is a disparity in power. And the other difference is that the UK is coming out, whereas these other places, Ukraine, Turkey, and so on, are trying to get closer to Europe. We're coming out, and if you come out of the European Union, you've got to give something up. You can't have all the benefits that otherwise would be available to you. So there are three remaining sticking points for the most part. Fish, the question of access to UK waters, the so-called level playing field, Britain's willingness or unwillingness to align itself with the regulatory framework on goods and services, and thirdly, arbitration, when the two sides fall out, who decides Uh, and Britain's continuing reluctance to agree to the uh, jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. Elvia, which of these three is going to prove the most most difficult to solve? Obviously, level playing field. Because fisheries, it it, it has to be kept for the end. It is a transactional issue. 
and it's a very complex issue. It is heavily loaded in with the identity uh, sensitivity issues because it incarnates really the, the sovereignty recovery uh, on, on, on British uh, uh, waters and economic uh, economic zone. But uh, I think that on fisheries, they are the two parties are really interdependent. Uh, the, the EU fishermen needs as much to enter into British water, to have access to British water, as the fish exporters need to have access to the EU markets. And in the end, it will be sensible, but they, they, they will have to find a compromise if the other issues are unlocked. The main issue has to is about level playing field. And that takes us back to the defense of the EU single market. It is about protecting the competition, fair competition within the single market. Obviously, the, I think that the, the decreasing trust between the two parties and the way that Boris Johnson has been calling to diverge from EU re regulations demonstrates that it's not only a question about uh, adopting uh, new rules and uh, Having developing the capacity to develop new British rules, it's about really taking the possibility, the opportunity to diverge from EU rules. And Europeans don't want to let, with the, with in the medium long term, some trade distortions uh, create some imbalances within the single market. And this is happening precisely at the moment where when Europeans are trying to leverage the the more the single market as a tool for more level playing field with other trade partners, notably, obviously, with China, um, but as well with Switzerland. They have renegotiated in 2018 an agreement that needs still needs to be ratified, but in which they have introduced some state aid uh, regulatory issues and an arbitration, a possibility to uh, solve some uh, dispute settlement mechanism. Is there a fear, Elvira, that uh, were the European Union to concede on British divergence from EU regulatory standards and at the same time grant access to the single market, that would create a precedent for negotiations that are ongoing in other parts of the world? The Chinese, for example, would say, well, you gave it to the British, you can give it to us. I don't expect Europeans to move on that. Uh, I think they have moved from the initial position they had in the in the mandate in last January from regulatory a dynamic alignment on EU regulation on state aids, which was a very uh, ambitious initial position, and now they are what they want is to have the possibility uh, to agree on the possibility to have an arbitration instrument, uh, and what is discussed at the moment is more the autom automaticity of that system. It's more the kind of sanctions that would be implemented and to try to have a system that is easily uh, used and that prevents some, some strong imbalances. But that's why it's more at the level of the negotiators that they have this discussion. But it all depends about the willingness of Boris Johnson to, uh, to move into that direction and to clarify uh, what might be the UK stated future policy. Okay, it's it's not just about his willingness, though. Perhaps it's also about his ability, whether he can manoeuvre himself towards a concession on that question that he's always that his Brexiteer wing of the party have always said would always describe as a betrayal 
of the Brexit vision. But, Michael, let me ask you about the politics, the UK politics of this. There has never been a majority in the House of Commons, not even a majority on the Conservative benches, for the kind of Brexit that would emerge if there were no dealism. It's a relatively small number of Brexit purists who want that. Boris Johnson could, if he were so minded, assemble a majority in the House of Commons for a different kind of Brexit, were he to concede on the level playing field and the arbitration mechanism by pulling in the Labour Party. Is there any likelihood that he will risk splitting the Conservative Party and getting a softer Brexit through the House of Commons off the back of Labour support? I doubt it, because Theresa May did try that and it didn't work. I mean, she was dealing with Jeremy Corbyn rather than Starmer. Uh, but let me say something about the, the level of playing field which bears upon that. Right at the beginning of the process, a lot of the Brexiteers were talking about a bonfire of regulations, kind of Singapore on 10. We would be a free trading, deregulated market, reducing the cost of production by getting rid of these burden regulations, burdensome regulations that were coming from Europe. And if you remember the run-up to the referendum, David Cameron's negotiations, it was all about getting rid of European regulations. And that has changed uh, over the years, and especially since the Conservatives won a lot of seats in the north of England, now they're saying, don't worry, we'll keep the standards. We'll keep the environmental standards, the labour protections, uh, the health and safety standards, uh, and so on. So they have shifted uh, on the substance. What they're refusing to do is give any guarantees that that will be the case. They say, we, we, don't worry, because we will do this unilaterally. And that's not good enough for the Europeans, because they want guarantees that future governments will be bound uh, into this. The parliamentary arithmetic problem looked to have been solved after the 2019 election because Boris Johnson got an 80-seat majority, and so it seemed that he was able to push things through. But probably the only thing that he can push through is, is a hard Brexit because he's not going to get the kind of cherry-picking deal that he wants from the Europeans. And I really don't see, now that this issue has been so polarised, there'd be much scope for him to split his own party, which is only just united, uh, and rely on the Labour Party to bail him out. That seems to me pretty unlikely. So let's uh, look ahead then. And if, if now seems likely, and both sides have conceded that this is the most likely outcome, there is no deal. Uh, nobody sold a no deal uh, solution at the 2016 referendum. That was not what was offered. Uh, even the hardest of Brexiteers, Nigel Farage, talked about the possibility of a Norwegian-style relationship with the, with the EU. But if it is a no deal, we're on WTO rules. Elvira, what would that mean practically from January onwards for goods uh, crossing between the UK and the EU in both directions? Well, first of all, um, there will be no regulatory alignment on the EU regulations. So it means that they need to, to have some certification, conformity assessment, uh, which are not only costly, but which add uh, delays uh, at the border. Uh, so it will mean some additional delays at the border with some administrative, uh, uh, a lot of paperwork for, uh, for, for business and additional, um, additional tariffs which will which will rank uh, around i mean the average might be around 8.7% but with some peaks on some products and we know particularly that uh, for example uh, uh, dairies are very uh, all what has to see with the agri agri food is uh, 
is conserved by some tariff fix. It will mean also some additional complexity for, for people to move from one, one from the UK to the EU, and it will have particularly an impact for uh, the service sector, which uh, the UK economy is really depending on very, uh, uh, very largely. Um, it will because it will mean. Uh, it will mean the necessity to require some some visa. Uh, it will mean the necessity to to have an international driving license, uh, to have a copy for for entrance for for the car. A, lo a lot of, in fact, what is interesting is that we all we're focusing on the additional costs for business, but it has a lot of implication at a very granular level. It, it will have an impact on on uh, consumption, local consumption. It's not only for business between the UK and the EU. It's for local consumption in the U in, in the UK, uh, with some initially at least some delays in uh, uh, for the products coming in, into the UK. Beyond what will be important uh, economic impact, it will have a very it will complexify a lot the functioning of supply chains uh, in many industry sectors, notably on the automobile uh, sector, uh, which is uh, relying really much on very long and, and complex supply chains through Europe, with some problems of local content to uh, fill the requirements of uh, rules of origin. Um, I think that's what we have to keep in mind is that uh, it has some short-term impact, it will have some medium-term impact, and it is beyond what is the cost of a no-deal economic cost. It is adding today really some additional complexity to the management of the pandemic and to the economic recovery. It's more, the question is in addition, uh, how much more complexity it is adding to the economic recovery with further risk to have a sort of degrading relations between Europeans and, and the UK. And my worry particularly is uh, we will still have to discuss the many issues that are that will stay on, on the table because it, it cannot be no deal. It's not only a, a blank sheet. It's not only a white sheet. It, uh, the many issues re remain on, on data transfer, once again, on professional qualification, on migration, um, but uh, that it may, uh, we may have to engage again in those discussions in a more acrimonious uh, climate. Yeah, so even if it is a no deal, that doesn't mean it's over. It's, it's just a whole new chapter opens up. Michael, just uh, talk me through just very briefly. What are the sectors of the British economy that are most vulnerable here? I mean, I'm thinking about British farmers who sell their beef and their lamb and other produce in the European market, fishermen who sell their fish in the European Union, uh, the City of London and its financial services market in the European Union. What will tariffs do to those products that are currently tariff-free in the European Union? Will some sectors of the British economy simply be priced out of the market? Will their goods and services simply become too expensive uh, in comparison with their European competitors? Uh, and therefore, many British businesses face the possibility of losing that valuable market. 
Well, that could certainly happen. In, in, in Scotland, we export about 85% of our fish and we import about 80% of the fish that we eat. So the industry is highly interdependent. And all the focus here from the British side has been access to waters. But, but fish has got to be marketed uh, as well. And there are more jobs in the processing and marketing of fish than there are in the fishing fleet uh, itself. Of course, the uh, supply chains in the automotive industry are very important. And as for financial services, they're not even on the agenda in these negotiations. That was too difficult. Uh, and we're going to have to fall back on what's called uh, equivalence. That is, the EU will unilaterally decide whether particular financial service providers are allowed to operate in European markets. And eventually, maybe they'll come to an agreement on, on that. Uh, there are questions about security. Now, there will be a security deal. It's too important not to have a deal. But a lot of these have all been riding on a trade deal. And the idea was get the trade deal out of the way, and then you can get all of these other things, including the many little things that Elvira has just uh, spoken about. So there would be a great deal of disruption. The impact of Brexit is recognized by the government's own Office of Budget Responsibility to result in a fall in GDP compared with what it would have been of 5%. Uh, and no deal adds 2% to that. Uh, and together with a lot of disruption, already we've seen the disruption in the ports at the moment, partly to do with COVID, partly to do with uh, logistical questions, uh, and a lot of it to do with Brexit as well. Let me, let me move on to something else, because we've only got a few minutes left now. Michael, uh, we've seen since the beginning of the year support for Scottish independence in Scotland go well above 50% and, and stay there consistently in poll after poll, uh, 50, 55%, 56% in, according to some polls. Uh, and much of this is attributable directly to Brexit. But and it's very reminiscent of the 1980s when the England and Wales, for the most part, voted for um, Conservative governments and Scotland continued voting in larger numbers for Labour governments. And the result of 18 years of that was, this, was devolution of the Scottish Parliament. There is an echo of that now in the sense that Scotland did not want to walk the, the Thatcherite path, but had to because it was part of the United Kingdom. Scotland similarly does not want to walk the Brexit path, but has to because it's part of the United Kingdom. Is Brexit an existential threat to the Union? Uh, yes, it is. The Scotland voted to remain, of course, by 62%, Northern Ireland by 56%. But the problem for the pro-independence people in the immediate aftermath of the referendum was that 30% of independence voters had actually voted to leave. Uh, and so it was no here at all that this was a mandate for independence and that the remaining in the EU is connected with independence. That has changed. Uh, and those people who voted uh, yes to independence and no to Europe have shifted towards being pro-EU uh, and, and anti-Brexit. That explains a lot of the difference there. So this pro-independence vote is increasingly a pro-European vote. Those have come together, which results in a small increase, but that takes over the 50%, which is what really matters. There's also been a shift in Northern Ireland amongst Catholic nationalist voters towards reunification because of the border question. So undoubtedly, this produces centrifugal effects in the UK, increases support for secession, but it makes it more difficult because with Scotland or Northern Ireland in the EU uh, and England outside the EU, you're going to get a hard border. And the harder the Brexit, the harder 
that borders. Yeah, which was which definitely wasn't an issue in the 2014 independence referendum. Let me ask Elvira whether she can comment on that. The one of the perhaps counterintuitive things that's happening in Scotland now is this alignment between pro-European sentiment and pro-independent sentiment, and a lot of the shift is attributable not to a rise in nationalism, but to a reaction against nationalism. So rather counterintuitively, a lot of pro-independence people now consider themselves not nationalists at all, but anti-nationalists anti the kind of nationalism represented by Brexit. How is that viewed among the European partners? Is there a, has there been a shift since 2014 in the way this is seen? Well, I think, yeah, Europeans see that very positively. And because I think that also in the EU, change, uh, things have been changing um, those past years. And that the, the current debate, if you follow what have been the, the last decision at the EU level, with the next EU generation project, trying to increase fiscal solidarity between the EU members. And I mean, it's it's more focused on what's, what could be called uh, collective sovereignty, trying to uh, mutualize the, the, the sovereignty of the, of the member states. Uh, of course, we're facing some strong uh, trends of nationalisms within the member states in the EU. But the, the current EU agenda is not only focused more on this idea of uh, uh, collective sovereignty, but all the current debate that is developing about strategic autonomy, about trying to wait on the global scene between the main global actors, which are, of course, obviously the US on, the, on one side, China on the other side, is, it is fueling the idea that Europeans can need to to uh, to have the, this support and uh, and this leverage uh, of the single market. So the reaction uh, coming from from Scotland, in in a way, is uh, well aligned with that uh, view about sovereignty. Okay, I want to finish now by asking you to, in one sentence, look into the future. Perhaps only the next few days of the future. Is there going to be a deal? Yes or no? Uh, Elvira first. I would say that this morning, I'm not so optimistic. I think that, as uh, Michael just said, it, it is about the, um, how Boris Johnson, in, how much he's, in, he's feeling weak and needs to, uh, to reinforce the cohesion of the Conservative Party. And uh, with the, any kind of deal, he will uh, have to face some criticism on, on, the, on both sides, the Labour side and the Conservative Party side. Michael. It's not looking good for a deal. It Maybe they'll just run the clock down to the end of the month and we'll leave without a deal, but without a formal no deal uh, uh, either. Maybe the worst of all outcomes because people will not have a chance to prepare properly for a no deal. Well, there we must leave it. This has been Constitutionally Sound, a podcast brought to you by the Centre on Constitutional Change at the University of Edinburgh. My thanks to Michael Keating, Professor of Politics at the University of Aberdeen, and Elvia Fabri, Senior Research Fellow at the Jacques Delors Institute since 2009. Thank you both very much indeed. Please join us next time. 